Welcome back to the Levity Zone. I'm sitting here in Islamabad, Pakistan amongst the gray South Asian crows and all the life that is happening here in F6 sector. So it's a, it's a wonderful occasion to bring this to you. Uh, I'm on a work mission here and a science mission. So work is for my wonderful company, Elixir Technologies, who I've, I've worked for now for 30 years, developing some of the original software, which is still used all over the world. And uh, meeting our team, 200 souls here in Islamabad in the laboratory, talking at local universities about information technology and the user experience. And... Uh, Yesterday, I talked at a, a major university here, the original science university called Qaid-e-Azam University in Islamabad, and I'm going to bring you that talk today in the Levity Zone. That talk is perhaps the first talk on the origin of life and the search for life in the universe that has ever been offered here in Pakistan. My host uh, is Professor Pervez Hootboy, who's a world-renowned physicist and activist fighting for science and reason in a world, especially this world, sadly, that is increasingly falling under the controlling dark shadows of ignorance and fear. So uh, with that, I'm going to give you this wonderful, frolicky, romping, funny and at times inspired at times, complex at times talk on the uh, new thinking of the origin of life uh, that's all come up in the last couple of years, but uh, with some new additions for the last uh, three weeks of travel. And you'll, you'll hear about that next. Then following my time in Islamabad, I'm going on this rest of this round-the-world tour, which actually started when I was at the SAND conference, the Science and Non-Duality conference in San Jose. And then I went down to Ecuador, to Quito, Ecuador, to review and examine a university that is possibly one of the sites we're considering to host our International Society of Origin of Life meeting in 2020. And my host there kindly took me to the Galapagos Islands, where a lifetime dream came true for me, where I stood at the bay where Charles Darwin came ashore from the Beagle in 1835. And I stood or crouched face to face with 150-year-old giant tortoises. From there, I went to Honey Bee Robotics back in Pasadena, to meet with and do a presentation for the roboticists who build the instruments for drilling and coring and various things for the Mars rovers to talk to them about a design of a chisel to fly to Mars on an upcoming or maybe distant mission to break rocks and look for evidence for stromatolites on Mars. And then I flew here to Pakistan. From here, I'll go on to China this evening, actually, to meet with uh, the insurance industry, a burgeoning cell phone, mobile phone, smartphone-based insurance effort that we've enabled in China. Uh, very, very exciting. Make a presentation for them. And then uh, go to Hong Kong and meet more people there, including a world-renowned 
AI specialist who's designed uh, AI robotics, very human-looking AI robotics, and talk to him about how this origin of life model, which is kind of like an eye of creation, it's a creation mechanism, uh, might be used to create new AIs in the future capable of open-ended evolution and adaptation. So uh, without further ado, I want to take you now from the beautiful back garden of Basad Hamid, his house here in F6. He's our founder of Elixir and my dear friend uh, and mentor and boss for 30 years now. I'll be taking you back yesterday to the university just on the other side of the diplomatic enclave uh, here in Islamabad with Professor Hoodboy introducing this talk on a lot of science and uh, I hope you enjoy it. It's not an easy task to introduce Bruce Taylor because he's got so many diverse interests. He's been involved in designing spacecraft to do very unusual things. He's worked with NASA on that. He's also spent a lot of his time worrying about the origins of life how life came to be on Earth, its chemical beginnings. He has very recently been uh, in the news, grand issue of Scientific American, which is principally the work of Bruce and his co-authors. And so it's a matter of great privilege that we have him over here today, the physics department. I will not take up much of your time, and simply ask Bruce to begin. But after this, we're going to have a short uh, discussion upstairs in the, in the seminar room. And unfortunately, uh, there's space only for 20 people over there. Um, but those of you who feel really exercised, please uh, do make your intentions known to us. Bruce has got so many interests, so many diverse ones. He's also a person, very interesting person in how he thinks about the world, but we leave that for later. Thank you, Bruce, for being here, and go ahead and start. Thank you, Dr. Goodboy, for having me here in your home institution, uh, which I know is 50 years old this year, so congratulations. Uh, I'm 55 years old this year. So uh, what I want to present to you first, the, the field of the origin of life is actually a very grounded field, but it has been grounded in chemistry until now. Not too much in physics, if, unless you count classical physical processes, but it's been one of the great scientific mysteries for thousands of years, actually. It goes back into Greek philosophy. There's always the question of where did we come from? And our field is young, perhaps only 125 years old, maybe 100 years old. But it's also grounded in evidence on our own planet. And what I brought here, what I'm going to hold up, is a fossil of, basically, this is your oldest, as far as science is concerned, your oldest ancestor. This is a stromatolite from northwestern Australia. And if you can kind of see a little bit, there's these ridges. It's a rock with texture, with fabric in it. It's like a, a rock made of cloth in a way. But it was spun by individual organisms cementing sand grains together, if you can understand that. 
So if you're by a lake shore today, you often see a little bit of scum on the edge of the lake shore. That's sometimes called a biofilm. If you br don't brush your teeth, your teeth develop plaque, which is another kind of a biofilm. Biofilms dominate the biosphere. They're 90% of the, of the biosphere by weight in terms of their carbon. They're a massive component of the biosphere. And in, in a sense, complex life like us is a rare example of microbial communities bumping up and giving us complex life for a short period of time, probably no more than 1% of the time of life on Earth, and then complex life will, will go away because the conditions for complex life are extremely narrow and, and rare. We're dealing with this now because I'm on the site selection for the next Mars rover landing site. And Mars is a planet that went out of habitability. It, it basically died early in its, its, its history. And for us to try to find evidence of microbial life on Mars is going to be a big challenge because life ran out of steam in that instance. More on that later. But let's get on a little bit to the subject. So our field was really created by Charles Darwin in 1871 in a letter to his friend Hooker, uh, who was a great correspondent with Darwin. And he had this very famous expression uh, in one paragraph, and what if, a big if, if we could conceive of a warm little pond somewhere with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, heat, light, electricity, etc. And this, this is what everyone knows. They know the warm little pond. But what they don't remember is uh, this expression here, which is important for chemists, such that a protein compound was chemically formed ready to undergo still more complex changes. He nailed it. This is the actual fundamental problem in the origin of life. How do you grow a compound and keep it from breaking down? Basically either repairing it, which is what biology does, or growing new ones all the time. And that's going away from equilibrium. Basically the water molecules are always trying to break your compounds down. Your body is an example of a machine that fights against that entropy. That is trying to break it down all the time. That's effectively what life is. So if we go on uh, the next hundred years, we had O'Paran and Haldane uh, identifying that we needed soups. We needed concentrated material, concentrated enough for chemistry to happen. So that's where your primordial soup came in. Uh, then in 1953, Harold Urey and uh, Stanley Miller did an experiment in Cambridge where they sparked a chamber with a compound of gases that sort of simulated in their minds the early Earth's atmosphere. And they were simulating lightning going through the chamber and they made amino acids, which are one of the building blocks of life by sparking the chamber. This was very famous. This was uh, world news at the time, as famous as uh, the discovery of the structure of DNA, which was also in Cambridge. It was a lot of things going on in Cambridge. Uh, 1977 was the discovery of these deep sea hydrothermal vents, think springs coming out of the bottom of the ocean, pushing a lot of material. They were called black smokers at the time. And it was suggested in 1982 that perhaps life could start deep in the oceans. We don't think that's uh, viable anymore because there's always water present which would break your compounds down. That's the short answer. But our field basically investigated that for 30 years without it being able to make a single polymer. When I came into the field six or seven years ago, they were looking for an alternative, and I worked with David Deemer at UC Santa Cruz, and pr we proposed the alternative, which is back in Darwin's pools on land. 
to take you on a personal journey of where I picked up this, I want to show you some pictures of where we found it and how we got there. So this was an astrobiology field trip in 2015 up from Perth, Australia, up to uh, this area called Shark Bay, which is a very saline estuary. And it's salty enough that it, it prevents fishes from eating everything in their path. Therefore, you get these things, stromatolites, which are the great offspring of these. So this is biofilms that set rock together and make basically rock structures. These, they're shown underwater, are stromatolites. They look like stones, but they're made by biology. They're almost like your teeth if they grew uh, with each layer of biofilm. So this is what stromatolites look like. And they used to basically ring all the continents uh, before the rise of complex life. There I am standing with the, the stromatolites. And if you touch them with your finger and push into them, they're very spongy because there's millions and millions of microbes in there. The top layer is making food from sunlight. The next layer is doing chemical synthesis, etc. Stromatolites. So we continued for 2,000 kilometers up to this very special region called the Pilbara, and what you're seeing there is the North Pole Dome. And if you look, they, see this outline here? This is now understood to be the, the volcanic caldera. And this is a very special volcanic caldera. It's 3.48 billion years old. And it was preserved under lava, two kilometers of lava, that capped this area. Because very little of the old Earth is left, the Earth from what was known as the Archean period. There's only a few little little pieces of that earth left because continents are in constant movement. They're being subducted down. They're being broken up. They're being uh, kind of consumed. And this piece of Northwest Australia is the largest intact piece of the old earth's continental crust that exists. So if we go here, there's our, our bus. This is in the middle of the North Pole Dome. That's sort of the geologist's point of view of it. And there's more stromatolites. They're everywhere. This is a great big slab of stromatolite, indicating, in this case, a marine shoreline, an ocean shoreline is there. This is looking from the top at the domes of the stromatolites. These are about 3 billion years old. Here's one that's cut in cross-section. And here's one that I took, which shows black shirt. And then these little ripples there are also these biologically created structures. And in the black chert, if I took a thin section of that chert, I might find a microfossil. So that's the other type of biological evidence. They're very rare, but they're preserved in black chert. So there's the two kinds of preservation. You have morphological preservation that's just the structure laid down by the biology. And then you have rare microfossils in this strata. There's Martin van Krandendonk, who's the main geologist of this region. And there's me looking just at stromatolite on the surface. And that's what you see just everywhere. It's so well preserved there. There I am with stromatolites at the Strelly Pool locality, which is their discovery outcrop uh, from about 50 years ago. There was a very, very exciting discovery three years ago, and this was published in Nature Communications in April. It took, took that long for the peer review process. This is geyserite, so a young student who's your age was working with Martin van Kranendonk, and she noticed this little area, this little white band in the rock, and she said, we've got to go back there. So they went back there, 
They took a sample of it, and it turns out it's uh, what's known as geyserite. This is geyserite. And so those black and, and, and light bands, that's the same as minerals today that are made by when a geyser comes up and splatters down on the rock, it deposits things. This rock could only be made by a geyser. So it had to be a freshwater environment on land. It's not marine. So then that caused Professor Van Cranendon to rethink the Pilbara as a volcanic caldera, not under the ocean at all, which is what most evidence uh, of that age is at um, ocean shores, but in fact was a hot spring. So then they started comparing everything else, and they found these. This, this is what microbes leave in the rock. These are called terracets. And this is silica gel with microbial matter in it. And here's the terracets from 3.5 billion years ago, in very rare find in the, in the Pilbara. Then they found something even more remarkable. These little spherical uh, contusions, which they are interpreting as, as trapped air bubbles, trapped oxygen bubbles in the silica that preserved the stromatolites. There's, there's evidence for trapped air bubbles. This would indicate metabolism, metabolic activity. It's the oldest signs of metabolism on, on the Earth at 3.5 billion years ago. And those bubbles tend to be trapped in the sort of gooey, slimy material that microbes make for themselves to glue their communities together. So this is, this is remarkable in its own right. This is why this is also world news. And it was the basis behind uh, the Scientific American article in August was this hot spring discovery and then what we did is place our origin of life model into the article, because we're collaborating with this team. So the rocks tell you a story, and they tell you the story in reverse. So here we have the geyserite 3.5 billion years ago. This is a sample I picked up in another locality, which was basically hot subsurface vein stromatolites at about the same age. Here's a lakeshore stromatolite from 2.7 billion years ago nearby, indicating there was a lake there. And this is the modern stromatolites, all the way back to the present day. So the rock record is really important in the question of the origin of life. And it's mostly been not part of the origin of life community. And what Dave and I are doing is bringing the geologists into the community. Because all breakthroughs in science are done inter with interdisciplinary collaborations. So here's how we think that life can start in Darwin's warm little pool, except we modify his claim or his, his insight and say that it was probably not a warm little pool, it was a hot little cycling pool connected to hot springs. And you'll see why in a minute. But here's our landscape. So what happens on a landscape? You get rainfall, you get dust particles coming from the solar system. That can accumulate in rock pools and the rocks themselves can generate important nutrients for the start of life. So it's a concentrating environment. If this material fell in the ocean, it would just simply dilute. And this is why chemists never liked an ocean origin, because they're in a dilute solution pretty much all the time. So the land can collect, concentrate, then cycle through hot springs, generate an early form of life that then can distribute across the landscape and be subject to selection pressures, almost like a computational selection. And then the ocean shore is the extreme world, the extreme environment, because you have salts and a lot of things that are very tough on, on biology, actually. 
So let's go on. So this is our work in the field. This is Dave, my colleague at UC Santa Cruz, adding material to a hot spring pool in Kamchatka, Russia. What he did is add the material and it immediately formed membranes. So this is material derived from asteroid impacts or uh, meteorite impact material uh, formed membranes in this little warm pond immediately. And membranes are the number one thing that you have to be able to, to create for life to begin. This material derived from a study of this meteorite which fell on Australia in the 1960s and it's called the Murchison meteorite, it's very famous. And if you grind up a powder of this and put it into solution, you form membranes and it has over 70 amino acids. So the building blocks of life can come from space. We don't need to spark chambers to do it. You know, thank you very much Miller and Yuri, but we don't need that. We have plenty of material from uh, solar system infall. So that's the feedstock. So what Dave also discovered, which is the basis of our work, is that if you have little dishes of compounds that contain mixtures, mixtures of the building blocks of RNA, which is AMP and UMP is what we use, and you put that mixture into a little dish which is in this rotating system, this is from our laboratory, and you hydrate it, and the dishes come around and they go through a dehydration station, and you keep doing this, you can grow RNA. You make it longer and longer and longer. And the way it works is that between these layers of, of lipid, the membranes that you put in, which could be fatty acid membranes or could be modern phospholipid membranes, these are called amphiphilic compounds. They form these beautiful membranous structures. When the membranous structures dry down, they compress the building blocks of living systems between the layers. And then those, as water leaves, they stitch together like a zipper. And you can create huge numbers of random sequences. Up to 150 base units long, we can grow these polymers. They're random, though. Life is able to write its own code, but the code is random. So let's go on. We use what we call nanopore sequencing to determine that this was actually RNA. And we use ordinary gel technologies. And our colleagues have done peptides, which is amino acid building blocks. So here's me trying to do this in the field, in a hydrothermal uh, volcanic field in uh, California last year. And there's my slide tray in a vent gas environment. This is quite a dangerous place because people have lost their lives in this, in this location. And we were able to polymerize RNA using the moisture in the vent gases alone on mineral chips. So we try it in the natural world. Here's another place that we just visited. This is in Yellowstone National Park in the United States. And it's an amazing place. It has thousands of these pools everywhere. Different geysers. The most famous is Old Faithful that goes off about every hour. And all the tourists gather and then it goes off and then they come back. And that, that's what Old Faithful is. This is a special pool uh, that has uh, highly alkaline waters. And what it actually creates is these little gels. This is little gels that grow into a mineral called sinter. And within the sinter, within the mineral, is a ton of biology. Lots and lots of biofilms. So biofilms are growing in these environments. And what I did was I introduced some of these waters to, uh, to solution. And right inside this vesicle with my little lipid solutions, 
I can introduce this alkaline water from the natural world and shake it up and I've made trillions of little compartments called protocells. So that works in the field. You put it all together, if you can make compartments in chemistry and you can make polymers in chemistry and you can get the polymers into the compartments, you can potentially start life. So here's what we did in the lab. Through several cycles, these glowing little bubbles here are the compartments containing RNA that was made randomly. So we, we, we verified this empirically. So these are, we used decanoic acid and these are what we used. So bring it to another analogy, how many of you are computer users? Is everybody a computer user? How many of you are deep nerd users of computers, nerds? How many of you are in computer science or com computer engineering as a field here at the university? Computer scientists? <coughs> Great, there's a few, few deep nerds here. So here's the example. So you've just seen a bunch of chemistry in a different language, a scientific language of chemistry. Let's give you in an almost everyday language of computing because everyone's a computer user now. So what if you had uh, a computer that was programmed by punched paper tapes? Dr. Hoodboy will remember these days, <laughs> these terrible days, that computers were programmed by either punched paper tapes or cards that had little square holes in them, and you fed them in, and they hopefully worked or didn't work. But that was the programming medium for early personal computers. But what if our punch paper tape did random progress, to just punch things at random? Let's make a system that, that has a reader for these tapes, and it puts it into a primitive computer. There's a, this is a model of an Altair computer from the Homebrew Computer Club, because I have a large personal computer collection. And the computer is powered by energy, and it cycles. It, it pulls in these tapes, and it tries to run them. And there's, it's running them in its little processor, and they either crash and go into the crash trash, or they run. So if the program runs, a simple decision is made, say program A ran, let's punch a, a bit more tape, stick it on with program A and make program AB or program AC and try to run that. And if that runs, you evolve your computer. So now more functions can boot up and you get a computer with a keyboard and a screen. And you keep evolving it, you get a laptop, you keep evolving it and you get a smartphone. So this is evolution of software and hardware together. This is a very inefficient way of evolving hardware and software. So we, we hire people called engineers to do this for us, only slightly better probably than random program writing. But this will actually work. You can actually write software systems that do this, that, that use random programs through selection to gradually get more and more functions. So where do we find this in nature? So here's our whole crazy system. You find it in nature in the little pools. The random tape puncher is our polymerizer, making those long chain polymers built from the building blocks from space and from the geology of the Earth. The polymers are programs. They're random programs. The computer that they're going into is a warm little cycling pond. The programs uh, that the polymers are running in, the system is protocells. They're, they're basically little polymers inside bubbles and they either pop or they do not. So here's our Charles Darwin you know, overseeing this process, and he's saying, well, that one popped and it lost all its contents, but that one survived. And the ones that survive 
can come down when the pool dries down and come down and they're your population. We'll see what happens to these populations. So here we have a cycle. We call it our coupled phases cycle. That was our paper of two years ago. So you have a three-way system. That one is drying down to make your films and make your random polymers. The, the wetting phase puts those polymers into these bubbles. The testing phase, they either pop or they do not. And then when the bubbles, the survivors collect down at the bottom of the pool, you have a chance for interaction. So it's a three-way system. Now, when you look out into the countryside, you see the system still working. So you have a very dry season, right? And suddenly the rains come, like they've just come here. Suddenly the soils are now moist and plants start growing. There's a lot of, a lot of metabolism, constant metabolism, once the rains have come. And they're doing furious amount of metabolism because it's going to dry out again. So what do they do as they're doing it? They grow these things called seeds. And the seeds are capsules to preserve the polymer called DNA and RNA and others such that they can get through the next dry cycle. And then when the winds come and, and blow the seeds around, it distributes them into environments where when they come, become moist again, they go through the cycle. So that basically the pattern of the origin of life may be found in the world today or the other way around in a sense. So we've proved this empirically with drying down our lipids, this works, encapsulating the polymers in the, in the protocells, and then we see in the bottom of our dishes the survivors that have come back. So this is a cycle that's now been proven in, in science. And then what happens when the survivors come to the bottom of the dish, they, they fuse together. They join together because when they dry down, their the membranous compartments go boop, 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 and fuse back into layers. So it's a complete closed-end cycle. And this is called a kinetic trap by chemists. So we found the kinetic trap. But there's also another term for it, the progenote, a term coined by the great evolutionary biologist Carl Woese and his graduate student George Fox in the 1970s when they discovered the third branch of life. They named the progenote as the boot-up phase of the living world, and we'll see how that might work later. So let's take a look at how the whole thing goes together. So this is the, the artwork that I came up with uh, about two years ago, and we've been rendering it like crazy. Scientific American uh, did a version of it, which I can show you here. Uh, this is, in science, you, you rarely have the opportunities of, of, in your lifetime of creating an image that goes out to the public that becomes the image that not only the public uses to understand a new theory or hypothesis, but our colleagues can also use the same. So we worked on this for two years to get it right. And then Scientific American did this beautiful treatment. And you can see the, the, the thing, that, the circle there that has a spiral in it. Uh, the brown part is drying, the blue part is wetting, and this little, little thing that's opening up here is the actual uh, collection of protocells. The gel, we call it, the third phase, the moist phase. Call it your, your bathtub soap at the bottom of your bathtub that's accumulated when you drain your bathtub. So they actually did this beautiful job to explain it for the public. Here, you can see hung there in the poster is the full poster presentation that we used at our last meeting. But let's take a look at it on the screen. So what we have is step one. We divided this into seven steps. Synthesis, 
in the early solar system as the planets are forming, as, as the dust is, is accumulating, as ices are melting when the star turns on, when the sun turns on, you get all this chemistry that's happening. And you have the chemistry that occurred between the stars called cosmochemistry that made large amounts of organic compounds were made in space. They accumulate in this dusty disk around the star. And we can see this in exoplanet research. We can actually see these disks now. You can see shadows cast across these disks. But it, our solar system wouldn't have been any different. And so it had a lot of material. And this material is falling down onto the landscape. And it's accumulating in our aqueous environment, so in these ponds here, which gives us our organic chemistry. So the building blocks we get by grinding up meteorites from this period, from the age of the Earth, we get the chemistry working in, our, in the lab. So it's it's plausible to happen on the early Earth. You get concentration, enough concentration in these pools, and you get the formation of structures, lipid layers, membranes, more complex uh, chemical structures. And then if this material finds its way into a sort of an ideal pool that's being driven by a geyser, where it's filling and being drained, or filling and drying, and filling and drying, you could get this engine starting, the cycling engine, the three-phase engine could start to lift the functions of biology, the very most primitive functions of biology into existence, such that you generate a, basically a mass of protocells that's tough enough and is doing enough metabolism, and it's, it's sort of more self-sustaining, that when the, uh, this washes out of this pool into other pools, it can actually grow again. So think of like your bathtub soap but if you could take the, the soap from the bottom of your bathtub, but it had gotten a little intelligent, right, through lots of bathtub, bath sessions, and you could put it in your sink, and the soap bubbles would, would, would multiply and there would be more of them. This is what we want to get to. This is, this is now the speculative part of our theory, that, these, that this gel, that this collection of little compartments can evolve molecularly, and then it can be distributed to other pools, and then develop the functions of the living world. And some of those functions are just are shown here where if, if these, these gel, these progenotes, flow into a stream, they have one problem. There isn't enough food to eat. Because these are dilute, freshwater environments, usually neutral pH. If they hit a lake shore, it's even worse because it's even more dilute. So by the time early life or progenote uh, forms end up in these environments, they have to be capturing sunlight to continue. So it's sort of true by definition. If you're in a dilute environment, you're not making food, you're not around. So until the next set of progenotes arrives that can capture sunlight to make some of the, the building blocks you need, uh, they're just going to be trapped in the chemical feeding pools. So once that happens, they become more robust. And this is pretty much what happens in the living world today. Every time an organism is placed in a new environment that stresses it, it evolves. So it's the same pattern. So you end up, for instance, in this estuary next to the ocean. And the oceans were coffee-colored back then. They were full of dissolved iron and many other things. You had no oxygen in the atmosphere. You had acid rain. You had lots of asteroid impacts all the time. It was quite a different planet. Orange sky, probably. And, but here they've got salts coming in from the ocean, which are bad for membranes. If you eat a lot of crisps, right, salty crisps, or maybe a doll that has too much salt in it, what happens to you? 
you need to drink a lot of water, right? Sometimes your heart rate goes up. That's because your cells are stressed by the salt. And each cell is trying to get the salt out. Get it out, get it out, get it out. Because it's not good for it. You sort of feel bloated. You feel like, too much salt. And life has to deal with salt by pumping it out. And so this is why the oceans are, are not the place where life can start. Because it's a stressed environment. And then the last stage is the colonization of the entire planet. Is when you get these stromatolites. They're robust. They, are, they can survive tides, storms, salt, etc. And they grow their rock towers that you just saw. And they can go- colonize the planet. So here's the rock record. There's the, the geyser right from, from the earliest phases of life. The lake shore. Here's some lake shore that would be made in this environment. And here's the seashore, a seashore uh, stromatolite made in this environment. So these are the, this is the fossil record. Uh, Basis. This is our article, which I just showed you, and this is how they interpreted it for the issue. So now the whole world knows about this whole hypothesis. The good news is this is testable. In science, we've never had a testable hypothesis for the origin of life. And this is testable at many levels. There's many experimental protocols that can be done at each, each step. So now, uh, how many of you are from astronomy clubs or interested in astronomy? We've got astronomers here. So this, this new information has huge implications for the search for life in the solar system and maybe the detection through spectra of a planet, an Earth-like planet, that might, have, might support life uh, in much farther from the solar system. So this is the mission that I'm working on. It's called Mars 2020 and it's a big rover. It's about the size of a, a Pakistani Suzuki car. <laughs> Maybe a little bigger, actually. <laughs> Suzuki's are really small. It's amazing you can get like six people in them. I have no idea. <laughs> it's the miracle of Pakistan. It's not water for gasoline. It's how many people can get into these cars. <laughs> seven? You can get seven in those? Wow. Uh, so this is our Suzuki. A uh, little more expensive and more costly. But its mission is launching in, two, in three years. Its mission is to look for evidence for life on Mars. So it's, it's not strictly a geochemist, it's not strictly a geologist, it's actually a geobiologist for the first time. And the argument that I'm making with NASA, with our team at Arizona State and the Australian colleagues is you've got to go back to where there was a discovered hot spring on Mars. They found an evidence of a hot spring. Uh, this is my rock hammer next to stromatolites in Australia which is what we need to be able to do is break rocks on this mission. This is the famous hot spring uh, discovery by Tara Jokic, the student who's your age, who saw this band. She saw this band and it was almost nighttime. And she, it was speaking to her, almost like in a mystical sense. She just couldn't get out of her, and they, out of her mind. And they were going back to their vehicle. And it was so dark they got lost, her and her colleague. And she couldn't, she just remembered this. She said, we have to go back here because there's something about this that's different. And it turns out that is the geyserite. That's the, the hot spring, the proof of the hot spring on Mars. And that's a piece of it that I brought back uh, last year. Now, jumping forward to Mars, this is a meeting I attended in uh, January 2003 to pick the landing spot for the first two rovers. And this is the actual hand count of people voting to send the Spirit rover to the Gusev crater. 
And I was just an invited guest at the meeting. I couldn't vote, so I didn't bother putting my hand up. So instead, I took a picture because I thought this would be historic someday. And it actually turned out to be. This is the meeting in 2017 to pick the landing site for Mars 2020 for the big rover. And there's our, our very nervous team there. Very nervous because there's now 300 people in the room instead of 25. And there's many careers at stake. And so we're presenting to 300 geologists mostly. We're presenting a, a case for where life may start on Mars. So this is a lot of words here, but basically if, if you think that, Mar, that, that life has to start in a hot spring, that actually uh, tells you where to go on Mars. You have to look for where the chemistry might have worked four billion years ago. If you don't go there, you're just gonna find a bunch of rocks that are tremendously degraded uh, and changed by climate. So if terrestrial hot springs are a driver for life on Earth, they also preserve evidence for life really well, as we saw from this guy. They're able to preserve evidence. So it just makes sense uh, to go to where life could be established and look for it. Now here's the, here's the key thing. The hot spring on Mars is a place where life can start. There are likely places to search for the last and best preserved accessible evidence for life. So if life was starting on Mars in a hot spring setting, but Mars was drying out, it didn't have a magnetic core, was losing its atmosphere, and by a billion years in, the oceans had just dried up, and the atmosphere became very, very thin, and you had high ultraviolet radiation at the surface, and you had what are called perchlorates, which mean you can't grow potatoes on Mars, so, you know, the, the Martian movie is, is wrong, sorry, and you can't grow potatoes there. So... It's a planet that was dying, was actively dying. So if you had a start for life, it would, if it started in a hot spring, it would have to go underground for the protection of the rocks. Hot rocks, it's called the refugia. That's what the biologists term this. And it would have had the best access underground to the plumbing of hot springs, going down through those hot water channels, and it would have been there, and that's where you'll find it. And unfortunately, we don't have the technology to drill that deep. And the chance of finding microbial life is really small on Mars. But we do have the chance of finding something like this on the surface. And that's what the argument I'm making. We need to be able to break rocks on the surface to find evidence. So here's the place we want the NASA team to send the rover. This is the landing ellipse for Columbia Hills. And Columbia Hills was already visited. These are real pictures of Columbia Hills. This is the Spirit rover in 2005, 2006, driving over this ridge, and they saw this. And they said, what is that? That's, that's different than, you know, I, I can't hardly read these landscapes, but the geologists would look at that and say, there's something about that. And they drove down to it, and this is the rover that, that, that did the driving. It's called Spirit. It's, it's solar powered. And they drove down to it, and this is what they found this interesting rock outcrop that had, was both, it had volcanism, it had fluvial activity, it was a lake shore, but it had lots of diversity of, of silica and carbonates, and it was probably about 3.7 billion years old. And then they were wondering about this, and then one of the problems Spirit had was the rear wheel was stuck, it wouldn't turn. So they were only able to drive by dragging the wheel. And by accident, this led them to discover they turned up soils, and this isn't snow, this is silica powder. 
So they, by, by the accident and fate of having a broken wheel, they, direct, they, they excavated on Mars, which they didn't have a tool to do that, but they, they, a tool was invented by breaking down wheels. And that is opaline silica. And that meant that what they were looking at was a hot spring, an old preserved hot spring like Yellowstone. And next to it were these special rocks that looked like the rocks that form at hot springs in Chile, in, in the Atacama Desert on Earth. And so what they then did was drove up to these rocks and tried to break them in half using the weight of the vehicle, this brake button. And this is what they saw. So here is, uh, this is actually on Mars. This is a broken, broken rock. This is what it looked like. And this is from Chile. And this is a, what's called a breccia, uh, made in the hot spring. And they, they pretty much, the geologists said, this is a hot spring created rock right there on Mars. It's really, you know, visually very identical, and the imaging bore it out. So we need to break rocks on the next mission. Unfortunately, the vehicle does not have a, a hammer on it. But I was just at Honeybee Robotics three weeks ago, and with those are the engineers who made the drills and things like that, and we designed a small chisel with a spring, would be spring-loaded, would slam down. It's called a percussive chisel. We designed it on paper, and they they create that stuff all the time. The chance of us getting that made and demonstrated to NASA and on the mission is quite small. But I've identified a gap. Because with a dentist drill, like they have a drill, a corer, and a rasp, they cannot find this. They cannot find these rock textures. They will never see this. Because they'll go in, and Mars, everything is coated with dust. And it hides the rock. So if you drill into this, you expect to find these beautiful little ridges. Uh, the, the drill will destroy the structure. You won't really see this. You need to have a little chisel that knocks a piece of it off, and you can see a fresh face. That's what geologists do. They're always breaking rocks and looking at them. In fact, I'll show you an example of that. So here's me in the Pilbrot last, uh, last summer, breaking open a slab. And then what you do is you look. And this was a new stromatolite discovery right here. And that's the mineral called barite. And those red nodules are stromatolites in barite. This has never been found before. So this is, this is, what, this is what you do in, in the field if you're looking for signs of early life or the signs of the geology of the planet. So here we have a picture of, this is the, the rover on Mars that's currently, it's now dead there. It actually finished its mission right at Columbia Hills, right at this home plate, hot spring. This is the big rover we want to send. Look at the size difference. The big one we want to send back to see what this one found. Now there's a big argument in NASA like, well, we can't go back to the same place. We have to go to new places. We need, new, we need to collect new samples. And the geologists, the geologists in our field are saying, no. If you discover something, you go back. That's very, very compelling. You go back to that same place. That's, that's basic science. So that's the debate that's going on. Uh, now we're going to switch gears a little bit because NASA and others consider that there's two places in the solar system life could have, have emerged. One is on potentially Mars because it was very Earth-like. It had oceans and things like that four billion years ago. But what about these moons of the outer solar system? The moons of, of Saturn, one of them being uh, this planet called, or a moon called Enceladus. 
because uh, a colleague of ours uh, who was the head of the Cassini mission, they discovered plumes coming off through the ice of Enceladus. Now let's take a look at Enceladus. So Enceladus is this moon. It's very small. It's like a marble, much smaller than our moon. And it has a rocky core. It has some, some layer of ocean, of liquid water. And it has between 10 and, and 30 kilometers of ice. That's much thicker than, in, you know, in Antarctica, much, much thicker. Uh, but there's a lot of water in the solar system, and this is one of the places you find it. And there's something driving these, these jets through such a, a great amount of ice, and it's probably hot water from a, a hydrothermal vent, just like the black smokers. So our colleagues at JPL are arguing, well, there could be life in the Enceladus oceans. We're arguing it can't start there because of this hydrolysis problem. You need wet and dry, wet and dry, wet and dry. But we're, they're flying a mission there. And this is what they would, would say would be going on in the, the oceans of Enceladus. These are the black smokers uh, that leave these tremendous chemical gardens in the bottom of our oceans. Here's our hydrothermal field. So there's two competing hypotheses. One of them suggests that life could start on Enceladus in the deep icy oceans and it would be methane feeding life, methanogenic microorganisms. So they could exist just eating everything from here because there's no sunlight to eat. Uh, the limitations of hydrothermal fields, as we talked about earlier, uh, the, the, the positives of a hydrothermal field is you've got abundant microbial life now on hydrothermal vents in the ocean. There's large tube worms and there's all kinds of things. Uh, you've got uh, sources of energy, redox potentials, potential gradients, hydrogen in solution to feed life, but maybe also to feed the origin. The limitations we talked about earlier, you're continuously in water, so everything breaks down constantly. So can you start life there in the deep ocean? We don't think you can. So the hydrothermal fields uh, have all of these properties, which we just saw, fresh water, it's not too stressful. <coughs> Membranes can form, cycles of hydration, dehydration, concentration of reactants in like little dishes and Darwin's warm little ponds. Self-assembly of those bubbles it can all happen in this environment because we've shown that in the lab and now in the field. The limitations of our approach still are, do we have sufficient supply of organic compounds? Are those dust particles and meteorites, is they sufficient supply? And if you have clay, if you have clay minerals floating around in the ponds, they can tend to absorb or eliminate your organics. That's a problem. Uh, so, and we haven't demonstrated anything beyond the bubbles going in the cycle and being stable. We've not shown metabolism. We've not been able to go long enough to show a functional polymer in the system. That's still a prediction. And that may take 50 years. It may take 10. We don't know. We're putting it out to our young investigators I'm chairing a conference in Texas in January with 60 of them. What I'm going to tell them is I always tell them there's multiple Nobel Prizes in this work. And that gets their interest. You know, because by the time it all works, I'm going to be too old and whatever. I'm the proposer of the theory along with Dave. But there's multiple Nobel Prizes in this work for actual bench chemists who are willing to do the work. So let's summarize it. So can life start in, at Enceladus? Well, if, if life can start in the oceans of Enceladus, 
then it could still be there. Uh, if, but if the origin of life requires fluctuating watery and dry environments, it can't start in Enceladus, but it could start on Mars because Mars had all the right conditions. So let's look at the next part of it. So what are we going to detect when you fly a spacecraft through those icy plumes? Dave, my colleague, is invent the inventor of something called nanopore sequencing, which is becoming a big international technology. It's a little box you can attach to a laptop, and you can sequence DNA and RNA on the little box. You don't have to have a half a million dollar PCR machine. It's great big, big sequencers. And so what they've done is they've made a silicon version of that that will fly on the spacecraft, and the spacecraft, as it goes through the icy plume, it has two, three, four, maybe five seconds in the plume. And the detector's open, and the, the, the icy particles are coming in. They have to hit the nanopore, uh, which will be many thousands of nanopores. And when they go through that nanopore, it's going to do the chemical detection. So that's the, the, the instrument they're designing right now. So in some ways, I'm handling the search for life in the inner solar system, and Dave is handling it in the outer solar system for a short period of time. There'll be other people involved. So what Dave is predicting, if the ocean is sterile, if the ocean of Enceladus is sterile, uh, it, it's habitable, but there's nothing there. Unless life can find its way there from Earth or from maybe Mars. But it's hard to imagine life, say, in a meteorite, landing on the surface, on that icy surface, and getting through 30 kilometers of ice. And there's no atmosphere on Enceladus, so it's subject to hard radiation. So to get life into the oceans of, of, um, of Enceladus is a tough one. You know, you could watch Europa report where they seem to find a great big squid there, you know. But that's, that's Hollywood, uh, Hollywood fantasies. But if microbial life exists in Enceladus in the hydrosphere, would include fragments of polymers and specialized species of hydrocarbon that can only be made by a living system. And this fancy word, enantiomeric excesses of chiral molecules, that means the molecules will be either left-handed or right-handed in abundance, which does suggest this is how our, our life seems to tweak organic chemistry and makes, it seems to favor left-handed or right-handed molecules. And that might suggest that there is life in the oceans. We won't detect a microbe directly because the instrument can't do that. And the spacecraft isn't coming back to Earth. All we're going to do is get a little spray of ice and see what we can see in the ice. And that'll be a great achievement. And that'll take about 10, 12 years. So it's not until the 2030s. So now beyond, here are exoplanets. Here's the artist's conception. These are often published on the web. These are not actual views of these exoplanets. It's just an artist rendering one of the first ones that was discovered. Uh, considered to be in potentially the habitable zone, a little bit larger than Earth, you know, Kepler 186f. Uh, what was considered earlier was that most planets around star systems are actually large planets close to their parent star, so they're really hot. So here's an artist's conception of such a, a planet. It's very hot. You, you couldn't have life here. The chemistry just would never work. I mean, you, you're constantly destroying material. So until uh, this last year, the TRAPPIST-1 system around a red dwarf star has probably about seven uh, Earth-sized rocky worlds. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. Now, looking at the scale of this thing, here's our solar system. The green band is kind of what we call the habitable zone. 
Venus is, is a hothouse environment, couldn't have life on it. It left the habitable zone early. Mars is still kind of the edge of the habitable zone, but there's no liquid water on the surface. So it's kind of out of it. Earth is comfortably in it. That's why we're sitting here. But take a look at this. This is a, a, a yellow star, a very bright energetic star. A red dwarf is a very low energy star. And if you, you really can't see it here, but this entire solar system of, of these planets fits in this tiny little diameter here. So when you have a, a red dwarf, it's a very small sun, and everything is very miniature. So the amount of energy flux that's coming out of a star like this to these is very low compared to our sun. But there are many, many more of these in, in the universe by a huge factor. Brown dwarfs, red dwarfs, they're just, they just outnumber everything. Um, so, but can life start in any of these worlds? So here's a, 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 it's about finishing up here. Here's sort of an artist's rendition of a, probably an unhabitable, maybe a semi-habitable world with a couple of very large planets nearby. It might just have too many hot periods and too many cold periods. You have to have beautiful circular orbits. So you have constant temperature. Temperature has to be within a range to sustain liquid water. So here's an artist's conception of well, a world that got lucky and was, you know, had, it's around a brown dwarf so the biology has to adapt to different kinds of incident solar radiation to feed on and much slower metabolism, much slower metabolism. However, in any of these worlds, this is, this is what I would put forward to you, that life requires polymers. And it requires encapsulation of those polymers in sets. And it requires then selection of those polymers in sets. It requires something like cells to get started. You couldn't have life start with crystals, with hard crystals, because there's no way to constantly remake them. There's no way for them to become tools. The, the, the polymers of life, mostly made, you know, made by carbon, can do amazing things. They can fold and make tools that do jobs, and they can store information. And those are the two basic things we need to exist. And you need to also have a compartment, otherwise things just go apart. So you need some kind of a, a capsule, and it probably has to be made by permeable membranes, which means lipids and amphiphiles. So it's almost as though, you know, anyone who proposes an exotic chemistry for life, what, we, what we're doing in our field now is you've come up with a three-sentence definition of a hypothesis for the origin of life. And we're saying, because our colleagues are going all over the place, they're like, well, you could have this exotic chemistry, or you just need physics. You know, the physicists, with, with apologies to Dr. Hoodboy, occasionally come into our field and make these pronouncements, like, it's just about energy dissipation. It's sufficient to start life. And there's sort of an arrogance in physics, like, that they can come up with a solution for everything. Jeremy England has done this recently a couple of times. And it's annoying to our field, because he never comes to our meetings. He never actually has read a single paper about the issues of the chemistry. They'll just make these hand-waving pronouncements because it gets news. It's newsworthy. Physicists have solved the origin of life. You know, hello, come to our meetings. You know, <laughs> come, be, come to be crit criticized because we will criticize him. I'm going to write to him pretty recently. Uh, maybe you have his email address. But I'm going to write to him and say, come to our meetings because you need to be educated in what the issues are in combinatorial selection, poly polymer growth, 
which have nothing to do with anything you're talking about. You're, you're just being annoying. <laughs> and you're even less impressed with silicon-based life. Even less impressed with silicon-based life. Yeah, it, uh, so if you're going to boot something up from scratch, there's, I think, very few avenues to do it. And it's a good thing that the universe generated all this carbon. Because carbon is incredibly versatile. And so for alternate exotic proposals, uh, why, would, why would it even anneal or congeal around an exotic chemistry when there's so much carbon, oxygen, nitrogen available, which can form polymers through wet drying cycles, can form polymers naturally? Uh, why would life choose another path? Now here's something very interesting for you. Uh, what's interesting about all this is uh, this is life that made rocks by taking sand grains and cementing them together. What are we doing to this day? We are a life form that is taking rocks and making and cementing things together and making what look like new minerals. Our bones are apatite, which is a mineral that's found in geology but is made also by biology. So we are intimately connected with the mineral world. Intimately. Our highways are concrete. It's a kind of a mineral that we constantly make. You know, Dr. Hoodboy's glasses are, are glassesite. You know, so in a sense, what I would put to you is that where biology and geology diverge is, is the selection of the following. Geology chose a hard mineral, hard crystals, to grow its structures. And then they run out of solutes and they stop growing. Like when salt is drying down and grows those long crystals and they stop. And they can't evolve. They can't be subject to much evolution. Life chose a soft crystal called lipid. It's a liquid crystal. Lipid molecules that are your cell walls are a liquid crystal. You can do crystal things with them. If you put them under a microscope, they do crystal things. They refract light and give you multiple colors. But it's a liquid crystal. It's a soft crystal which is very much more malleable and can be made subject to natural selection. And it can grow into the living world. So this is a potentially philosophically very interesting thing. The last thing I'll leave you with, which is perhaps a major uh, result for, for even political economy, uh, or how we think about our species, is the origin of life was thought about for many, for a century or more, even after Darwin, as stuck in this trap of the survival of the fittest. You remember his, his term, survival of the fittest? He actually didn't like this term. He, he replaced what his original language was as natural selection. But he was criticizing his lifetime for that term because it implied a selector or something hidden. And so he changed it to saying, uh, he was talked into using the very Victorian term, survival of the fittest. And that led to a lot of bad behavior. Because in, say, politics, you know, I survive because I'm more fit than you, et cetera, et cetera. And it's in economics, in politics, in, in many fields. The survival of fittings is actually a, a toxic meme. It's a bad meme. If it turns out that life did not start from competing things that had to compete, because you think about that, that bathtub soap that's at the bottom of your bathtub, how is that competing with itself? Those protocells that come down and form that aggregate, they don't have the technology to compete. They can't swim. They can't create chemicals to destroy the next protocell. They can't do anything. All they can do is form a network. 
So the network effect in the protocell progenote world would have been the selected for boot up system for life. So we started from a collaborative effect of a community of simple entities working in a network. It's impossible that we started in a strictly competitive uh, situation. And it turns out if you see the world through this lens, all of microbial life, all biofilms are collaborative systems. Biologists call them consortia. Consortia like a consortium where there's this part that does this job, that part that does this job, and together they survive. It turns out that human civilization is exactly the same. A city like Islamabad couldn't exist without all those containers coming in and you know the load shedding ending. You know, it's, it's a collaborative effort. This university is a network of collaborative functions. Your body is a network of collaborative functions. Your spleen does not compete with your heart. You know, sometimes people's stomachs do compete with other <laughs> They outcompete everybody. And sometimes the head has got too much attention a lot of the time. But the whole world is actually a collaborative network of cooperating entities. Now within those networks, there is Darwinian natural selection, of course. It's the tool that is used, it's the mechanism that's used to create new innovation that is donated to the entire system. So, you know, Apple created the smartphone, but China made it and Pakistan has it, right? <laughs> so that's the same thing. It's the same thing in technology. It's the same thing in economics. It's the innovators who are, who are powering the system up. And the innovators are using competition through natural selection. But the dominant force is still collaboration and sharing and a network effect. And we were sold, I think, on survival of the fittest by the first British wearing their pith helmets going to East Africa and watching lions, you know, taking gazelles and things like that. You know, those are the most dramatic examples. But the lions and the gazelles are co-evolving. The gazelles are getting faster. The lions are getting, you know, faster still, but if any one of them was too good, they would wipe out the other and then they would, the whole network would collapse. So the idea of very fast animals with good brains and vision systems and whatnot comes through that, but in the end, the successful organisms are working in a collaborative framework. So my mission in the next five to 10 years is to show how this new idea can come through science and into all of human enterprise because it can come into metaphysics, physics in some sense, uh, through uh, some work we're doing on campus with physicists, uh, information in physics, but it goes into economy, it goes into AI, because this model, this cycling model, teaches us about how to make true AIs for the first time. Software systems capable of open-ended evolution and self-writing code can be taught by this chemical model. So I'm going to uh, be in Hong Kong next week and meet with a world famous a roboticist who made that Julia robot that's been in Facebook. You know, the one that lost her head or something like that. So I want to thank you all for your attention and uh, thank our, our collaborators and uh, honor this university and its anniversary year and thank you for having me. Thank you for this fascinating talk, and I'm sure this will stimulate a very large number of questions. So, we can have questions now from the audience. 
Perhaps, uh, let, let, let me begin. The Uri Miller experiment told us how amino acids could possibly be synthesized in early Earth. So you needed uh, carbon dioxide, methane, oxygen, nitrogen, then the spark that gives you these building blocks of matter. Where do you get your amino acids from, given that you have a completely different kind of chemical soup? Uh, our amino acids come in from basically meteorites and dust particles. So, for example, if you, if you clean, if you actually had a bucket that was sitting out during the, rainy, during the rainy season for a couple of months, and you went into the bottom of the bucket and you, you could pick up small particles. Those are from space. They're still falling today. And in the time of the origin of life, they're falling in vast quantities. And we know their composition because we collect meteorites on the land and we find amino acids and nucleobases and fatty acids in them. So they were coming down like snow almost, in a sense, onto the land. I see. So you assume that they're already there, and then it's a question of how they form the proteins. Yes. Oh. And that's where your hot springs... The hot spring is a good okay. setting. Yeah. But in those hot springs, you wouldn't have the amino acids which have come from meteorites, since it's coming from deep underwater, deep sources under mm -hmm. the ground. And you, there, that's a very good question. You need a balance. So you have hot fluids coming in. They contain metals, for example, very important. Phosphorus, very, very important. Coming from geothermal sources, from rock weathering. And then you have the sources coming in from space, and they meet. And as long as one, it, it isn't too dilute, and the size of the pool is right, you can get the chemistry to work, even phosphorylation chemistry, potentially, which is important. So this is a proposal for our field to now do more complex simulations, which we're doing in actual volcanic environments now. Ashfaq? Yeah. So you were searching for a hot spring in Australia. What's special about this? You could have searched for maybe you can have similar environment in Africa, maybe in America, in Latin America, somewhere else. So what's special about Australia? The Australian one's old. So it's a fossilized hot spring, 3.5 billion years old, in the rocks. So that's why its discovery was so important. It's made out of this stuff, but we now know that it was laid down in a hot spring. So it's the oldest hot spring ever found, but it's a fossilized uh, rock remnant. This June we're going to New Zealand, where New Zealand has a place called Rotorua, and it has lots of hot springs, and we're doing our chemistry in those. And then we're flying back to the Pilbara to study this ancient hot spring again. But there's no water there, so we can't do our chemistry. It's just rocks. Chocolate? Could you speak up a bit because we are recording it as well? Do you have an obvious slide where you had this Mars rover and something red comes out and then greenish blue coming back? Yes. That's spectroscopy, yeah. And there's. So instead of a hammer, you're using a laser, was it, to have they Yeah, in fact, uh, they will do both. So they have three three rock instruments. They have a drill, uh, a, a rasp, which does the surface, and then they have a corer, which is really the innovative part of the mission. The corer just goes into the rock, 
and we'll be able to snap off the core of rock and pull the sample out and put it into a sample tube. And they can, but they can use uh, laser energy to also get the spectroscopy, get, get the, the, they have enough heat, they have a nuclear power plant, so they can do that. And there's a 3D imaging as well to make uh, 3D models of those escarpments, which is very handy. That's a very, very good question. Uh, the cold is a problem. So at our last Astrobiology Science Conference in, in Arizona in April, there was an amazing talk which showed uh, the hydrothermal, known hydrothermal vents in the bottom of the ocean and their combined energy. And then it looked at the total incident solar radiation from the sun on the surface. And it turns out that the vents are six orders of magnitude less energy than the surface radiation coming in. That's called an energy flux. Now on Enceladus or Europa, it's even worse case because you, you don't have much incident solar radiation and you have a tiny fraction of the hydrothermal energy coming into, as you point out, a very cold environment. So the argument against finding life or life starting in those environments is just not enough energy. It's just too cold for the chemistry to work and it dilutes. So that's those are the big hurdles. Yes. Thank you very much. Very informative talk, and I especially like the end, the moral part that uh, probably is the interaction and collaborations which are the uh, doubling to help the humanity to survive rather than mere competition. Uh, my question actually is uh, first of all, uh, you were talking about amino acids and proteins, and I was glad to mention RNA as well because. I think uh, most of the time biologists believe that it's the RNA which must be the origin of life rather than proteins because proteins are not capable of being duplicated themselves while RNA can perform the function of and catalyzing the reaction as well as has the ability to duplicate itself. So uh, uh, I, I guess it, I would like to comment on that that well, you believe that it's the RNA which was the origin of life rather than uh, protein molecules as the first life form. And, and my uh, second question is that um, do you believe that it would be, uh, there would be a possibility that still somewhere in, on Earth, somewhere still there is a possibility that uh, you know, the inorganic molecules would combine to uh, evolve into life? Mm -hmm. A second start. So, so your questions are excellent. The first one relates to this RNA world hypothesis proposed in the 80s. And it seems as though RNA is very versatile. It can fold and do things. It can template replication. It's very, very versatile. It's not as efficient as a protein in doing jobs. So the thought was that all we needed was RNA and that RNA would come along, be formed, and be the mechanism. There wouldn't even be DNA. Uh, in that period, because DNA seems to be a more complicated molecule. Well, it turns out that in this model, so that's a model that was come up by, by solution chemists. And solution chemists do think in serial terms, because they do their experience, experiments with serial steps. With this model, if we take a little bit of gram quantities of uh, the building blocks of RNA and of, of DNA, or of, even of DNA, or of amino acids, and put it into solution, we're going to make all the species. So 
on the actual conditions of the early Earth, you'd have all of those molecular species there anyway. So the question might be more better stated is who were the players? And maybe very, very short proteins or short what you call peptides were players. And we've done recently, our colleagues at University of Washington discovered why. If you have a little dipeptide or tripeptide, just a couple of amino acids long, it can actually touch the membranes in a protocell and stabilize them. So it makes a more robust protocell. Just a little thing like that. And those would be produced by accident or just by random chance in certain numbers. But what if there was a, what if there's a, a piece of RNA that could fold and make the dipeptide? Well, it turns out you can buy them from catalogs that do that. So the question then is, well, what's the chance of, of that 78 base pair long RNA emerging at random through, and through selection? It's possible. So you have one that's emerging, folding and making a dipeptide, which makes a more stable protocell, which carries the RNA back through the cycle. And if somehow there's a templating mechanism to make another copy of that RNA, you have an amplification that's going on. And our colleagues have done this in, in water columns in the lab. They've actually evolved ribozymes, pieces of RNA, in huge, num you know, in huge mag uh, amplification of, of the evol evolution of ribozymes. It's a known field. So it, there's a lot of suggestive chemistry here that it might have been that, that life booted up with all of the participants at once, including some form of DNA, some kind of wound up double helical, uh, you know, ribose based thing. Because it would have had the membranes, it would have had all of them. So they're all interacting in a complex way to boot up life. So you don't need to have serial thinking. And the second question was Is it still possible that? Uh, well, what's interesting is Darwin's statement, which I didn't go on to, he actually predicted that an origin of life couldn't happen again because current biology would eat it. And he was right on that count, too. Because not only would current biology eat it, but oxygen would eat it. The, the presence of free oxygen is a real problem in prebiotic chemistry. It didn't exist on Earth, but it, it blocks our reactions. It basically rusts everything and and so what we have to do in our chambers, we have to pump out the oxygen and put in CO2 to simulate that atmosphere. So probably life pre prevents a second genesis on, by its, itself. It just pre prevents that from happening. So in the hot spring, we can make the membranes. We could probably polymerize. I'm going to try this in New Zealand in June. I'm going to try to polymerize and try to make membranes in actual hot springs, but they won't last long uh, because there's biology in those, in those hot springs. And the Maori, the Maori people who are letting us use their hot spring and put our chemicals in there, they told me, ah, don't worry about putting your chemicals in. We used to cook pigs in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a sense, uh, human evolution has also stopped, hasn't it? Now we're in charge of it. We're in charge of it, actually. Yeah, through our technology. We have to evolve ourselves. Uh, we will have two more questions, so one from you. My question would be, can you uh, give an example of the shark day and uh, the life form continues from 3.5 billion years and is taken as an example that it is still thriving. And uh, your end of the last question actually connects to this. It was life form always dependent on oxygen. If this is the case right now at shark day that uh, all of that life form is thriving, 
because of presence of oxygen, uh, was there a shift in, in, in at some point where it started taking oxygen as, mm -hmm. as the driving force? Because initially, if you understand that oxygen was not present and it was good for life forms or initial life forms to emerge, but is a problem right now, and hence new life forms is, uh, is blocked. Yeah. It, it, it turns out it's very humbling that we now know, humanity now knows, that it took probably up to three billion years of the work of these simple organisms to create the oxygen we breathe. So three billion years. So in that entire period, it was biofilms, it was stromatolites that dominated life on Earth. They couldn't control the temperature of the atmosphere or the gas content of the atmosphere. So what happened several times, the Earth froze over completely, like they call it the snowball Earth. There's a big asteroid comes in, hits, volcanoes erupt, and there's a huge amount of hot gas released, and then the atmosphere is very toxic. The biology had to just get through those phases, and then at about 800 million years ago, biology was strong enough to control that. So if there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, it would take it down. It's like we're putting more CO2 in now, and there's much more vibrant forest growth because of the higher CO2. Of course, we're burning the forest, which is a very bad idea, because then they can't take the CO2 out. They can't adjust. James Lovelock called this system Gaia, where the biosphere acts as a one organism, moderating its, its temperatures and its gas content. So we didn't get oxygen till late, relatively late. The last 10% of, of life had access to free oxygen because life produced it in enough quantity that it could fill the atmosphere. And then you could have complex life that used the oxygen to create energy, to breathe it, to drive mitochondria, the little energy um, machines inside your cells, to make life that's able to drive and survive Islamabad traffic. You know, lots of energy is needed to, to live as a big organism. And this is, this is a temporary uh, situation because uh, the Earth is losing habitability. It's, it, the Earth is getting closer and closer to leaving the habitable zone because the sun's temperature is rising. So in 100 million years, 200 million years, 300 million years, the star's heat output is going to be growing or its, its energy output is growing to the point where we become Venus. So we have a runaway greenhouse. It's inevitable. We have a runaway greenhouse uh, and complex life is truncated. And then you have biofilms, and basically, as the oceans boil off, and it becomes like the Venus atmosphere, the hydrogen is lost and you're just CO2. And then all you'll have is deep rock uh, halophiles, basically. And that's for the next several billion years when the star runs through its fuel. So it's probably no more than 1% of the time of life on Earth is complex organisms. And so that's a humbling thought, because we have sort of a responsibility uh, that we were created in such a miracle of th 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 that we exist at all is an incredible uh, gift uh, that we can be conscious and we can, we can live in the cosmos. And so it creates actually responsibility to take better care of what, what has emerged and given birth to us. Disturbing thoughts. One last question. Uh, how hospitable these planets are, uh, you know, the planets that you want to land in, or we keep hearing from people like Elon Musk uh, that uh, we want to actually go uh, multi-planetary. 
uh, do we have enough time to make them hospitable, uh, given that Earth already is overpopulated? Maybe it, it can sustain three and a half billion uh, population. It already is almost double. So, do we have a time? It, it's kind of. Um, should we, as humans, concern uh, on, on on this? And should we actually uh, get the efforts uh, going, maybe with, with more speed? Uh, I think that there's a, there's a long answer and a short answer. I'll give you the short answer. The short answer is if we use our intelligence to manage our world, it's going to be an easier problem. We actually have to have fewer offspring, fewer babies, because every baby that is born now is going to use much more energy in the future. They're going to want lots more smartphones right, than we had. In fact, a baby born in 1930 uses a 50th of the, of the energy in the lifetime as a baby born in 1970. So even if we only have one child per family, which will help a lot because it will drop population within two generations, we'll start having, you see what's happening in Europe with negative population growth. Suddenly you have less pressure on the land and more resources and it allows the earth to recover a little bit. So that's, that's, that's one, one path. But if we don't go that path, we also have to manage our consumption, manage our production of gas, uh, combustion engines. We have to be intelligent and smart about it. If we're not intelligent and smart about it, we either toxify the world and crash the ecosystem, or we get uh, a lucky and we manage to figure out how to duplicate the biosphere. And this is another project I'm working on that I didn't talk about today which is a project called Shepherd, uh, designed at the SETI Institute and with myself and a balloon designer named Julian Knott, where we extend a fabric balloon structure around an asteroid, introduce an atmosphere, and start extracting material from it. We can also move them with gas pressure throughout the solar system. And you can see that in my TEDx talks called The Future in Space. And one variation of that is taking an asteroid that's half ice and half rock melting it to a globule and putting biology in there. And you make a small biosphere, effectively. And Shepard, if it was built, and I'm trying to convince Elon of it, he's been sent my TEDx talk, but hasn't, my phone isn't ringing from him. So I'm going to talk to Jeff Bezos, who founded Amazon, and I'm going to talk to the space program of China, because they're the likely long-term investors. So if we can invest in, in this energy materials capture and biological capture of small planetesimals, small objects in the solar system, we can extend human civilization off the Earth in a large scale because we solve all the major problems. The surface of Mars is a bad place. It's full of perchlorates. It's a bad place to build a civilization. You know, sorry, Elon. The moon is worse. But we can build large structures in space in the next hundred years. We can then relieve the pressure from Earth learn how to manage a biosphere correctly, and as we look at our Earth from a biosphere we made in space, we can say, oh, this is what we're doing wrong. You know, we have to become better stewards. We'll learn how to do it. So that's the Shepherd Project uh, that, that's on the TEDx talk, if you want to see it. Thank you very much for this very stimulating talk. You have inflamed the minds of many in this audience. But before we leave, these are thoughts for the future. Our immediate future is something that you and I have to take care of very soon. I don't know how many of you have been following BBC and looking at what's happening to Delhi. It has become like a gas chamber over there. 
There are people who are just filling up the hospitals. They're choking. They're dying. And this is what is happening to Lahore also. These past few days, the smog there was so bad that you couldn't look beyond 200 feet. And you could feel that choking. And people have been flocking to the hospitals over there as well. So as we think of the long-term challenges of that are facing this planet, we also have to look at the short-term ones, those that are immediate over the next year, five years, and unless we do something about that very fast, that is going to be something that's going to cause deep damage to us. So thank you very much, and thank you, Bruce, once again. And let's give him a As promised, back in episode 57, after my interview with Nick Day at the Science of Consciousness conference in June 2017, you can find video of my full plenary talk presented the very next day on the page for that episode at www.levityzone.org. Sometime soon, I hope to bring you the full video from yesterday's Islamabad talk under the entry for this episode, number 59. So thank you for tuning in back to the Levity Zone as I whirl around the world on this uh, amazing trip of science and IT and experiences and adventure visits and robotics designs and different cultures. Just an amazing time overall. And I'll check in with you again when I'm in the bay some day in December, and I'll bring you some poetic renderings from uh, our Wizard's Light shows that we held it at Burning Man this past August. So thank you again. Thank you, Elixir Technologies, for this wonderful 30 years of relationship and bringing me to Islamabad and many other places. And thank you to the university people who hosted me on the talk and the Islamabad uh, lab team that made it all possible and made the recordings and so for now here's Dr. Bruce signing off on a, a quiet Saturday afternoon here in Islamabad take care and we'll talk to you on the next round bye bye